Good morning. I'll be reading our text for this morning. It is Matthew 23, 16 to 22. When I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and we'll prayerfully respond. Speak, Lord, your servants here. Matthew 23, 16. It says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by the oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This is the word of the Lord. God, I thank you for this opportunity that we get to open your word this morning. I pray uh, as we prayed in pre-gathering prayer that you would humble our hearts, help us, each one of us, to sit with open hands ready for whatever the Spirit would have. I pray that we would so easily be willing to cast aside the idols of our hearts, the things that are causing us to say one thing and live a different way. Um, Yeah, God, fill this place this morning. Thank you that we get to be disciples. We get to be Jesus followers. We get to walk this life praising, worshiping you as King, in your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. You all could be seated. All right, well, how are we, family? Wow. (laughs) How are we? Good. Good. Good to get to gather together this morning. Uh, If you're a guest with us, welcome to Taproot. My name is Mike. I am one of the pastors here, and... Get to open up scripture today to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so this morning, we're just continuing our way through through the Gospel, specifically through uh, Matthew chapter 23, which is Jesus' famous discourse that we know of as uh, the woes. And as we continue to do this, as we continue to see uh, Jesus denounce religious hypocrisy, I just want to keep before us each week uh, what it is that Jesus is doing. Yeah? Uh, so these, these woes, remember, this is an exposition of verses 11 and 12 in particular. So just look really quick at verses 11 and 12. You see there it says, um, the greatest among you will be your servant, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So this is 
this is Jesus addressing kind of the, the ultimate problem behind the problem or the sin behind the sin, if you will. It wasn't, it wasn't just the outward acts that the Pharisees and scribes were or were not doing. It was a posture of, of pride. And so Jesus here in these woes, he kind of begins to just, he spells out for us what this pride in them looks like. He, he, he spells out how the scribes and Pharisees were being presumptuous and how it is that they were being arrogant. Now within that though, we have to keep in mind that the audience that Jesus is speaking to are specifically the disciples and the crowds, right? That's, that's how verse 1 starts and tells us Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. So these are the people who he has in mind in, in particular. We know that the Pharisees and scribes, they're around. Uh, they hear what Jesus is saying. They're hearing his sermon against them. But his audience is particularly the crowds and the disciples, which tells us that, that his, his crowd is ultimately the church, right? Jesus is giving shape to the new covenant community of the forthcoming church, And this community, us, is to be marked by humble and sacrificial service just like her king. And so these are warnings. Uh, And so with this, we need to remember to let these wash over ourselves first. As, as As we hear these woes being spoken, we need not think that these are are targeted towards someone else. We need not have someone else in mind, some other group in mind. They need to wash over ourselves first. Uh, Leon Morris, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he says it like this. And actually, what he does here is he quotes a bunch of other commentators, which I think is just fantastic. Uh, And he says this. He says, France, that's RT France, uh, speaks of the faults inherent in the Pharisaic approach to religion, even at its best, even the most scrupulous of Pharisees followed a system which tended to understand righteousness in terms of more and more minute legal prescriptions, and which could therefore dangerously distort the whole question of what it means to please God. Dietrich points out that Jesus addressed these reproaches to the most church-going believers of his day, and Fenton aptly reminds us that in reply to anyone who complained of this section of his gospel, Matthew might well have used the words of Nathan, you are the man. Right? And that's, of course, in reference to the story of Nathan and David, right? When Nathan the prophet comes to David and, and kind of shares the story about the sheep being stolen, and David is outraged about what should happen to that man, and Nathan points to him and says, you are the man, And so it is that Jesus is doing with these woes. He wants us to understand that that we're the ones. We, uh, good church-going people, tend far more towards a pharisaical nature than we do otherwise. And it's good for us to be challenged in this. Now with that, I have to say that our text this morning is admittedly perplexing. Uh, I don't know if any one of you were like, oh, what does that have to do with anything today? (laughs) Uh, And it it is. It's admittedly perplexing. I I think within the the woes section, this is the most challenging of them, as there is a seemingly limited, immediately correlation, immediately um, like applicable correlations for us today, but I think we'll see that there are some. So with that, let's, let's just work through uh, what Jesus says here. And we have to begin with his statement uh, at the very beginning there. Look at verse 
16. So he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. And I'm just, I'll stop there. So Jesus begins, obviously, uh, different than what he has earlier. Specifically, he says, Woe to you, blind guides. Blind guides. Okay, now there are a couple of things to just remind us of and then bring into clarification here. And we'll start by remembering what Jesus is experiencing. Remember, Jesus, he's not just filled with anger. He's not, he's not yelling. Uh, rather, we have to understand that the, the woes are a, a communication of compassion and regret and sorrow. So when Jesus says, woe unto you, he's not so much pronouncing a final judgment as much as he's deploring the miserable condition in God's sight of those who he is addressing. That's how the New Bible Dictionary defines woe. Right? And so Jesus, Jesus knows what's coming. And we'll get to that specifically when we hit Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. Jesus is going to warn the people of, of an impending judgment. or That, that is what he's doing. But, but he first, he's filled with compassion. He's filled with sorrow. He's filled with regret. And so he's, he's, he's as the perfect prophet... He knows that this judgment is coming. His words are a compassionate plea for them to repent. It's a final warning sermon. Now, there's an obvious difference in this third woe in that Jesus addresses the scribes and Pharisees as blind guides, right? Woe to you, blind guides, and also blind fools. And this is something that he'll pick up a few more times throughout Matthew chapter 23. He'll continue to reference to these uh, scribes and Pharisees as blind guides and blind fools. Now, just, I want you to just take a moment. Right? And I don't, know, I don't know what you know of the Bible. Um, but it, it, imagine you know a lot about the Bible. Imagine you're a student of the Bible. You're a scholar of the Bible. I, I'm personally one. I love I love the Bible. I study the Bible a lot. I like to think that I know a lot about the Bible. And that's the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus comes to them and he says, you're blind fools. Blind guides. How would that make you feel? Let's just take it out of the realm of the Bible. Think of your profession. Think of your day in and day out life. The thing that you do, that you're like kind of an expert on, that you know a lot about? How do you feel when someone else comes and tells you how to do what you're doing every day? Right? How many of you are like, oh, thank you so much for uh, your very non-professional advice? <laughs> right? No, you, it's, we take offense at those things. Right? When, when, when someone who's not a farmer tries to tell a farmer how to farm, guess who's going to be offended? the farmer. When a doctor is told how to be a doctor by someone who has no equipping in how to be a doctor, right? And on and on and on it could go, right? We know how this works. And this is exactly what's going on. The Pharisees and scribes are the experts, And Jesus comes to them and says, no, actually, you're blind guides. You're blind fools. And this was a very, this was a cut that they would have found very offensive. In essence, Jesus is saying, you think that you see, but you're actually blind. 
He's saying you think that you see Scripture so clearly and that you know all that there is to know about Scripture, but you're actually blind. And not only are you blind, but you're leading people blindly. And Jesus talks about this somewhere else in the gospel. I think it's Matthew 15. What does he say about the blind leading the blind? They're going to fall into a pit. It's not good. It doesn't end well. Uh, Bruner points out that what's happening here is in their complicated interpretation, they see so much more in the Bible than the obvious. And they're taking what they see and they're heaping it upon others. Now, I, I debated about how much to go into this, but every commentator referenced this issue specifically, and so I thought, okay, maybe we'll just we'll bring it out. The issue that's at stake here is this issue, it's this weird word called casuistry. I don't, I don't know if I ever say it right. It's spelled C-A-S-U-I-S-T-R-Y. Okay, go figure that out. Casuistry, casuistry, whatever. Anyways, it is the doctrine and science of the conscience and its cases. Doesn't that sound exciting? It's not. The short of it is that the scribes and the Pharisees spent a lot of time examining every little nook and cranny of Scripture, making determinations about what was acceptable and what was not. So in other words, what Jesus is rebuking is that rather than the scribes and Pharisees taking their responsibility seriously of, of being shepherds to the people, that's what they were supposed to be, were spiritual leaders, shepherds, and guides to the people, leading them to life. Instead, they gave their attention to little debates about everything, constant debates about what was right and what was wrong, constant debates about what was sin and what wasn't sin. Constant debates about what God cared about and what God didn't care about. That was what they spent their hours doing. And so ultimately, they are making more of Scripture than what it was intended, and they're placing these heavy burdens on the people, which is opposite of the way of Jesus. And thus, the result is that they're leading them away from Jesus and his kingdom rather than to Jesus. Again, Leon Morris, in his commentary, he says it like this. This quote is on the screen. He says, This chapter, that is chapter 23, brings us to understand that the Pharisaic system, like any system that puts its emphasis on rules and regulations, all too easily degenerated into the observance of requires that were doubtless intended to help people along the road to godliness, but that could become ends in themselves. And so that he just he highlights the, just the very dangerous and real reality of what religion does, right? When we talk about religion, uh, we don't talk about it in a positive light because religion is this kind of heaping, constant heaping up of rules and ideals that there might be hints of in Scripture and might sometimes serve for some good, but ultimately wind up becoming ends in themselves and leading people farther away from God. And so Jesus' woe here zeroes in on the practice regarding oaths. Now, this has come up before, right? Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, I'll just read it for us. We're going to probably reference it again. But in Matthew chapter 5, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So remember, this is the first discourse that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. And it begins with blessings. 
And his last discourse in the Gospel of Matthew is here in 23 through 25, and it's beginning with curses, essentially, these woes. But in Matthew 5, Jesus said this. He said in verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to, your, to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So there's, there's obvious similarities, right, and correlations here. Uh, the only differences here are, are, uh, are what the, the Pharisees are, are swearing on, so to speak, right? We, we bring into this, uh, into this section here the, the gold uh, of the temple and the altar in particular is what is targeted. But it's, it's similar. It, 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 it's the same thing. And I think what we need to know is that if something is recorded in the teachings of Jesus twice, it's of significance and we should pay attention, now, this is frustrating for me because in my own personal heart and mind, I'm, I, was, I was having a hard time figuring out why this is so significant. What are so, what's so important about oaths that Jesus wants to bring it up again and, and, and say and reshape it again, if you will? Okay? Well, I think he's doing a couple of things, and this is what we'll spend the rest of our morning doing. Number one, Jesus exposes a community of falsehood, and then... Number two, Jesus creates a community of truth. Okay, so this is the, the, the rest of our trajectory for the morning. Jesus exposes a community of falsehood. Okay. So I think it would be helpful for us, in light of what we just read, in light of this text, to remember what this practice was about. Okay. Uh, I don't even remember specifically what I talked about when we went through Matthew 5, 33 through 36 or whatever. It's because it was a long, long time ago. But here's what we need to know. Oath-making or swearing oaths was neither uh, commanded nor condemned in the Old Testament. But it was a part of everyday life in Israel. Uh, And and it became increasingly more so towards the time of Jesus. So there are numerous... Uh, extra-biblical writings, Jewish literature in particular, that kind of shows us what the details of this practice looked like, and it was very normative. But for our purposes, we need to understand that if you look through, read the Old Testament, there's a couple verses here, you'll see that that it was was a normal practice. And it it was neither commanded nor condemned, but it certainly was addressed. So here's here's what these passages say. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12 says this. It says, Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. Uh, Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 says this. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. And then finally, Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23 says this. If you make a vow to the Lord your God... Do not be slow to keep it, because he will require it of you, and it will be counted against you as sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as sin. 
Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips, because you have freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. So, so notice, there's neither a command. The Lord doesn't ever say, thou shalt make oaths for whatever reason. Nor are they condemned. Right? In all of these texts, Yahweh doesn't necessarily say, you shouldn't do this. What does he say, though? Uh, at the very least, he says, be very careful. Right? Be very careful about the oaths that you make. The big issue in the Old Testament passages was that the people would be a people who keep their word. That's the the issue that, that Yahweh is speaking into in these Old Testament texts. See, and, and what this does is it gets at the concept of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Right? So just so we know in here, when, when the commandment says that thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's not simply saying that we can't say God. Or, or, it's, or it's not necessarily saying that if you stub your toe and the first thing that comes out is God, that you've cussed. Right? Or that you've taken the Lord's name in vain. It's a, it's, a, it's a bigger, broader concept. Right? The, the idea of, of taking the Lord's name, it's this concept of carrying it, like holding it. And remember, what, what the Lord is doing is he's, he's shaping a people. He's shaping a, a unique, set-apart, holy community in the midst of pagan nations. Right? This is the whole Pentateuch story. He's shaping a particular community that is intended to represent him in a particular kind of way, or they are intended to carry his name in a particular kind of way. And the whole point is that if you make an oath, if you swear by my name, you'd better make darn sure that you're going to do what you said, because what you're doing is is representative of my name. And so this is what he's getting at in these Old Testament texts. And this is ultimately what carries over here into what Jesus is getting at. Because right? what's at stake here is the way that God's name is being carried in the community and in the world. This continues to be the reality for us today. Right? We need to continue to be communities, local churches, who are asking the question about how are we carrying God's name in the world around us? Maybe another way to put it like this is, who in your world, whether believer or unbeliever, knows that you are a follower of Jesus? And what does that look like to them? Like, this is, this is the seriousness of, of which Jesus is getting at. This is, he wants us to understand that a community is being formed, and so it's for us to ask, I mean, I think we could ask it like this, if if we're the only representation of Jesus to people in our world, what are they learning of Jesus? Because that's what it means to, to bear or to carry the name of the Lord. Right? Uh, Craig Keener, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he puts it like this. He says, Some churches fight for the authority of Scripture yet care so little for it in practice that they ignore the context of verses or explain away passages that seem too difficult much like I was tempted to do with this one. Like God's demand that Christians care for the poor or witness to their neighbor, but Jesus' attack is ultimately directed against the 
profaning of God's name. This is what Jesus' primary concern is. So here's what we see, is that swearing oaths, here's what Jesus is addressing, swearing oaths had become more about creating loopholes than actually honoring God. They had become about obeying the minor and extra things while disregarding the major things. So Keener highlights, uh, for example, caring for the poor or witnessing to your neighbor. We'll talk more about that specifically next week in the next woe when Jesus says that you're putting a heavy emphasis on these things and you should have paid more attention to justice and mercy and faithfulness. So what we have ultimately in this community of falsehood is, is this, is that a community of falsehood is all about posturing. A community of falsehood is all about posturing. It's about putting on a religious face, that's hypocrisy, yet not walking in genuine relationship with God and with one another, and we all do it. And we all do it. Now, now I don't, you know, I don't want to criticize us too bad. I love us. <laughs> but I, I think in examples, it's easy for us to, to walk in on a Sunday morning and put on the religious face. Like this is an easy space for us to posture. But where do we go when we leave the space? Like where does our Christianity go? Where does our witness go? Where does our discipleship to Jesus go? What kind of community are we? So I think a question to ask is this, is why did the scribes and the Pharisees place such an emphasis on oaths? More particularly, why do we? Now, this, this was the challenge here, is trying to figure out how, you know, where... Where do we do this? And this might look differently for each of us. I know it does. But just ask yourselves, like, what are the ways in which you swear to God? Dot, dot, dot. Right? And so I just, I just want to point out a couple of things that I think we see in the text. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm applying them to us. And so I don't want us to just think of scribes and Pharisees and religious people I want us to think of us. Why do we think that we might need to do this? Well, number one, it makes us feel religiously serious. Right? And, this, and, and, and part of this is, is, is fine and dandy. This is certainly the way of the scribes and the Pharisees. Actually, this is how, this is how Bruner, in his, all throughout his ginormous commentaries, every time he talks about the Pharisees, he calls them the serious And I mean, how many of us, how many of us want to be serious about God? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. The question is, what does it mean to be serious about God? You see, what it was for the scribes and Pharisees, what it can easily become for us is that there's something about swearing these oaths that makes us feel like we're going the extra mile. 
Like if I, if I do this thing, if I, if I add this thing onto whatever it is, then I'm going the extra mile for God. There's two problems with this. Number one, it's anti-gospel. Right? To, to say that we go the extra mile for God is antithetical to the finished work of Jesus. It's, it's anti what he has accomplished. It's anti what he has declared to be finished. Any belief that we can go the extra mile for God because that is what makes God happy is not gospel. See, that the beautiful and yet scandalous reality of the gospel is that God is pleased with you regardless of what you have accomplished or not accomplished. Because it's based on what Jesus has accomplished. It's sort of think that we need to do extra to continue to make God whatever, pleased, happy, unangry, is not living in step with the gospel. The second issue is that the extra miles are often matters of conscience. That is, they're secondary issues, not primary ones. So for the scribes and the Pharisees, it was things that they found to be offensive, or it was things that they thought would make God extra happy. If they would add on these particular laws, then these are the things that would make God proud, right? What are the things that we do that are like that? The The second reason why we might make oaths or place an emphasis on oaths is because it helps us to feel like we've figured God out. It, it, can, it can have this tendency um, to give us a false sense of comfort and security. Right? Like I've determined all of the things that God wants me to, to follow and I'm going to put them within this nice little box and I'm going to maintain my life within that little box and so long as I keep my life within this, God will be pleased. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees determined that they knew the things that God was really concerned about. See, in their mind, they were going above and beyond. They were like, we're not only going to swear by the temple, we're going to swear by the gold on the temple, which Jesus will just denounce as as foolishness. Their their statement is, you know, we're not only going to, uh, verse 20, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes, where is, where is it at? Oh, something with the altar. There it is. Verse 19, sorry. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Right? They're, they're like, we're going to split hairs, and this is what's going to make God pleased, and this is what we're going to force on everyone else. We have figured out God. 
The problem is what they knew was not grounded in Scripture anywhere. Here's how, here's how Bruner kind of spells this out. He says a couple of things. His first one is not, I don't think, on the screen. He says, how dare we say that an oath in the name of the temple doesn't count with God, but that an oath made by the gold of the temple counts. Who knows God that well? Like, do you see the, the uh, illogic of their logic? <laughs> they think they've cornered God. But who knows God that well? Here also is what Bruner says. I, I do have this one on the screen. Uh, whenever we teachers, I like that, we teachers, claim to know the innermost mind of God on the basis of anything other than the clear and uncomplicated interpretation of clear and uncomplicated texts of Scripture, we can be sure that we are in the presence of false teaching. Ooh. And, and this is what the scribes and Pharisees were genius at. They were, they were fantastic at taking like the singular obscure verses and building entire doctrines off of them. Right? I, I always love it when people are like, well, the one verse. I'm like, yeah, the one verse. You're going you're gonna to bank your life on the one verse? Let's start looking at some others. So where, we, where might we see this today? Where's just like one space today where we maybe make oaths? Um, and and it, it may not be a one-for-one correlation, but it kind of gets at the idea. And this is actually Will, Pastor Will, he helped me with this. It, it's, it's little things like saying, I'll pray for you, but then never actually praying for you. Anyone? Right? Because here's, here's how this works itself out. Here's what, here's what we do. We say that we'll do the thing. Right? We say that we'll do the right thing. That's, that's the right thing to say that we'll do. But then we don't do the thing. So that's hypocrisy. Right? And the reason, and, or, or the, the logic then is this, is that we care more about man's opinion than God's. Right? And this, this, gets to the, this gets to the religious, pharisaical heart. The scribes and Pharisees were far more concerned about their control over the crowds than they were about God's control of their lives. They were far more concerned about thinking that they could get God into their little boxes than they were about embracing what God might actually be doing. And all of those are, are false, they're communities of falsehood. And this is what Jesus confronts and rebukes. But it's not where Jesus leaves us. Praise Jesus, right? <laughs> it's not where he leaves us. Right? 
See, Jesus entered into human history to create a community of truth. And so our, our posture, our place in the world as a local church is to mature into a community of truth with one another and also as a witness to the world around us. And this is, this is what Christ in us creates. Okay? Now look at verses 20 through 21 here, and, and I, think, I think this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and by everything on it. And the one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. So here's, here's what's interesting. Notice, Jesus also does not condemn swearing oaths. He, he reorients it. He redirects it. What he does is he elevates God. What, what he says is, look, God is above the temple. God is above the altar. God is above the gold. God is the one who is in charge of all of it. And this is what begins to reorient our lives, right? This is, in Jesus's mind, how a community of truth is created. And this is who the church is supposed to be. We understand that God is in control. We understand that, that God is sovereign, that God is over us, and this is the reality that begins to reshape us. Um, Patrick Schreiner, uh, he says this. He has a book called Matthew, Disciple and Scribe. And I have to be honest, I'm reading this book for uh, one of my classes. I read it when we started Matthew also, like way back in 2019. And I'm kicking myself for not referencing this book more. It's so good. It's so good. I mean, I could restart Matthew. <laughs> wow. Um, and it would be amazing. It would be amazing all over again. Here's what, here's what Schreiner says. In, in this, this quote is in particular, it's specifically in reference to Matthew 5. It's, it's talking specifically about what Jesus already said in the Sermon on the Mount. But remember, they're connected, so I, I think it applies as well. Anyways, he says this. The prohibition... Of all oaths, again, might seem like Jesus sets aside the Old Testament law that permits oaths. Remember, Jesus wasn't setting aside the law. What did Jesus come to do? Fulfill it. He came to fulfill it. And that's what we see throughout all Matthew. But if this command is viewed through the lens of the preamble, um, meaning specifically in the text, it says, you have heard that it was said. Okay, so keeping that little space in mind then the Old Testament law enshrines the importance of truthfulness. The language of Jesus is therefore hyperbolic. Jesus reminds people of the original intention of the law. It's the whole Sermon on the Mount. His words create a community of truthfulness where oath-taking is unnecessary since men and women speak the truth. Okay. So I, I think this is helpful for us. If we, if we keep the Sermon on the Mount in mind, and we keep this sermon in mind, then we, we see this picture, we see this community in which Jesus is creating. And it's ultimately this kind of community where oath-taking is not necessary because the men and women of this community speak the truth to one another. We're, we're marked by truth. 
So how is this community created in our midst? A couple of points, a couple more things here. First is this, and I think I have these up here. Yes. Okay. First is this, our identity in Christ. We, We need to learn to intentionally engage our identity in Christ. Jesus' teaching here wants to ground us in the, the comforting reality that God is sovereign over all. It, 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 it grounds us in, in the, the comforting reality that, um, that we can't loophole our way around God. Right? That, he, that he actually is over all of it. Right? And then also the, that we as disciples, this people of this new community are a people who are in Christ. It's, it's this reality that if you are here and you have faith in Jesus, that is, you believe who he is and what he has done. You believe that he is 100% man, that he's 100% God. He's the God man who by, by whom all things were created, all things were created through him, everything exists through him, right? The Gospel of John, a couple other places there. But yet he entered into human history as a baby, born w- without any significance, yet also born king, it's the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, right? And, and lived out a particular kind of life, Specifically, he lived out the life that Israel could not live and did not live. He lived out the life that you and I could not and do not live and lived that in our place. And then we'll go to a cross and we'll be crucified for the sins of the world. Go into a tomb and then resurrect from that grave three days later, which is a really big deal defeating Satan and sin and death and hell would appear to hundreds of people and then eventually would ascend. And when he ascended, what was he doing? He's taking his throne. He ascended to his throne where he's ruling and reigning now as Lord and King. Jesus fulfills all that God promised to his people. Amen. Amen. And now, by grace, through faith in his name, we are saved people. We are a new people. The reality of this is that our identity has changed. Like who we fundamentally are has changed. We are are in Christ. The way that Paul works out this argument in Romans is that you were once in the flesh, but you are no longer in the flesh. You are now in Christ. Christ, right? He says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter three. He says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? Do you know what that means? My timer's going off. That means extra innings. Do you know what that means? (laughs) Come on. It means God dwells in us. Like if, if we could just sit on that for... I don't don't know, a long time. God, the Spirit, dwells in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that's really powerful, dwells in us, right? 
Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? It's insane. Uh, my, favorite, my favorite text when it comes to in Christ language is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. If you have a phone, that's still a fake Bible. Three weeks in a row. Just going to continue to emphasize that one. You can't underline a fake Bible, guys. Listen, listen, what's that? You can highlight it. Yeah. <laughs> this is what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. <laughs> it's a good example of it right there. <laughs> okay. If you have a pen and you're like a highlighter, underliner person, just notice how many times Paul says in Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him, it's the same thing, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth, in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we are predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him... You also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. You see, in the language of Paul, union with Christ changes everything. And, And it's this that shapes this community. It, it is this that transforms our lives. Um, Jonathan Dodson, in his book called The Unwavering Pastor, he says it like this. He says, the phrase in Christ refers to our union with Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are placed into Jesus, united with him in inseparable mystical union. In many respects, the Christian life is about settling into the blessed union. It is in this intimate relationship that we enjoy his grace, redemptive forgiveness, justified acceptance, heavenly intercession, adoptive love, and new creation identity. This is so central to Christianity that the phrase in Christ occurs over 100 times in Paul's letters alone. Christ is in us. See, the beauty of the gospel is that Paul is, he's not concerned about the extra stuff. In all of of his, his rebuking that he does in his letters, do you know what he's ultimately trying to ground the churches in? 
this reality. Like his, his constant reminder to them is don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you have been made. You are in Christ. We are in Christ. And this changes everything. Right? You see, we're a community of falsehood when we don't believe that we're in Christ. But when we believe and know and experience that we are in Christ, this transforms all of that. You see, it's, it's from this identity that all other realities flow. And so as we learn to engage our identity in Christ, what comes from this? Well, we learn to do things like embrace the mysterious nature of God. Now, Again, this, this may not be explicit in our text, but it certainly seems to be part of what Jesus was getting at. The, the Pharisees and scribes had nitpicked Scripture to the point of removing all mystery from it. They nitpicked God to the point of removing all mystery from him because that's comfortable, like, how many of us have, have questions about God that we would like to have answered? All of us, right? Um, but there is beauty in beholding the mystery. Right? There, is, there, is a, there is a beauty, there is a forced surrender that is created when we can learn how to embrace the mystery. Uh, I've been talking again with Will, Pastor Will, about this because we hang out in the office quite a bit. And he had a conversation with someone a couple weeks ago, and one of his takeaways he shared with me was, was this. Someone said, you know, when we were in the garden, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, he, uh, he, the guy just observed, when we took the fruit, we took something that we didn't need to take, and it was a violation of living in the mystery, I think that's mind-blowing, like just a mind-blowing observation. Um, because how many of us are like, well, why did God put the tree there? And that we, we this, is, this is a scribe and a Pharisee. We spend all of our time trying to figure out why the tree's there. And we, try, we, we, we flip over every stone. We're like, why is the tree there? Why is the tree there? All the while, we miss the mystery. And we don't behold God. Right? Because if we think about it, if we can, if we can, if it's controllable in our own power, it's not God. Like if it's just, if it's definable, you know, bullet pointed by us, neatly packaged with a bow on top, it's something other than Yahweh. And so here's, here's what the, the identity that we have in Christ enables us to do. It enables us to not have all the answers. And yet in the midst of that, be a non-anxious presence. Because we know that we don't have to have all the answers because we know who does. Like, and that, just, that should lift a weight off of us. Right? 
was reminded of Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says that the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. And it's an interesting text. The context of it is dealing with how God's gonna judge his people because <laughs> they're gonna disobey. <laughs> and the nations are gonna ask, why did your God like judge you? And the answer is this. God works in mysterious ways. <laughs> how unsatisfying is that? But the point is this, is that God, God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. That's like the definition of God. And contrary to the opinion of the scribes and the Pharisees, God isn't just confined to the 66 books of the Bible. He's going he's to work in like congruence with Scripture, but he's not confined to this. I think often God will work in ways that offend us or shock us and in ways that we might not be able to be like, well, where's the verse? Where's the verse? I think just another, again, one, in two weeks in a row, the Asbury Revival was an example of this. One of the, the, the favorite things I saw someone say about this was that God did not need the evangelical stamp of approval for revival to happen. <laughs> because it was, it was ridiculous. That's like, you, you know, you jump on the social medias and look at what was said about the revival and it was, just, it was nothing but scribes and Pharisees nitpicking about how they thought God was supposed to work. To which Jesus would say, woe to you. So we learn to embrace the mysterious nature of God. And I think it frees us. And then finally, we prayerfully give caution to what we say. I think this just kind of wraps us back around to what Jesus is doing here. Our, Our desire as a community is to be honest. It is to mean what we say and say what we mean. And within that, to be less concerned with the court of human opinion and more concerned with who we are in Christ. Rich Viotis, in his book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, says this. He says, the problem is that often our lives are not saturated with silence, which means our speaking often comes from a place not rooted in God. Instead of our words carrying power to expose the powers, announce the kingdom of God, and gently encourage those bruised in life, they too often resemble the words of the fallen world system. Rich will go on to say that he believes that the solution is prayer, in particular, contemplative prayer, which would be praying without words. And the whole point being that we would do well as a community of people who are rooted in our identity in Christ beholding the mystery of God, that we would do so in silence, contemplatively, praying in a way that orients us around a regular experience of the presence of God. And here's why. 
Because from this, we become a community who speaks the truth in love. Often our wounding words come because we don't experience the presence of God. And we speak in our flesh. We speak out of some other reality. We, we are too concerned about others' opinions, and so our yes can't be yes, and our no can't be no, because we're just like, oh, I don't know, what do they think? What do they think? What do they think? If I don't do this, then they'll think this. If I think this, then they'll think this. Ah! What does God say? Who does, who does he say about who we are? He says, we're beloved sons and daughters. Right? I was reading this morning, I was reading in Luke chapter 7, just in my reading. And uh, what was it? I mean, I'll just go there. Um, it's a Pharisee. A Pharisee comes up to Jesus and invites Jesus to eat with him. So look at this, Luke 7, verse 36. It says, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. It's cool. Jesus, we all, we all know like Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He ate with religious people too. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. That's a super intense scene. But notice, notice verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this was who's touching him. She is a sinner, most likely a prostitute. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. Then he goes and shares this parable about one who's forgiven much and one who's forgiven little. And then he rebukes the Pharisee. Verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And people were amazed. Who's this man who forgives sins? See, what I saw in this was that religious people don't see themselves as having sin. Only others. Right? And yet Jesus, he shapes us into a community of love. A community who's able to speak the truth in love, who's able to do so from a non-anxious posture of loving our neighbor and learning their story first. This is what Jesus does here. Jesus isn't panicking because a prostitute has wet her hair and washed his feet with them. Jesus isn't like, oh my gosh, get this sinner away from me. <laughs> Instead, he receives love and he gives 
love. Why? Because he knows who he is. See, if Jesus was concerned about the Pharisee, he would have kicked her out. But Jesus was most concerned about the love of the Father. The love of the Father declares that we're children. It declares that he delights in you. It declares that the opinions of humanity are not what matter most. And this is what secures us and transforms us and compels us to be a a community of, of truth, a community of honesty with one another. Like it's, it is this space that gets us to be able to actually share our stuff. There's kids in here. Right. Like we ought to be a space where we can be boldly and courageously honest and also be met in that without condemnation. Right. It's like the words of Jesus, like, Whoever is without sin cast the first stone. None of us gets to pick up a rock. That's a that's a radically different community, and that's that's the community of the kingdom, right? And that's the beauty of what Jesus is getting at here is that we have we are so shaped by the finished work of Jesus that we get to live honestly with one another in ways that no one else in this world would dare even venture into. And in doing so, we, we witness to the resurrected reality of our King. Let's pray. Father, would you continue to shape us into this type of kingdom community, a people who are putting away falsehood, who are not having to rely on, on the posturing of oath, swearing, um, but who are utterly just transformed by your work in us. I pray help us to to walk away this morning knowing that we are people in Christ, that we would hear from you that we are your beloved sons and your beloved daughters, and that that we would hear that, that we would receive that, that we would live in light of that. Thank you that, that you shape us into a, an honest community. Who though we're experiencing different things are also experiencing the same things. Let us walk with one another in Christ. Let us walk with one another in love. Let us walk with one another, not in condemnation, but in the victory that we have in Jesus. In his good name we pray, amen.